get a timer going. Yeah, so I asked Garrett, since Aaron was doing worship, if uh, they were okay with me maybe splitting this into two parts. You guys know me, I'm a habitual over-planner, which I think is a good thing. I'll probably get extra points in heaven, and you will get less, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, Why don't we kick off with a prayer? God, we love you so much. We thank you just for this community. We thank you for the way that you've blessed us and brought brought us into it. Um, I thank you just for your love and your Holy Spirit being present here. And I just pray that you continue to bond us together, that you continue to help us be strategic and purposeful when we come come together. Pray that you can really prepare our hearts and minds this morning to hear what you want to hear and um, uh, that you just uh, help us to receive it and keep it and use it. You're an awesome guy. We love you. Amen. So I'm going to jump right into this. You guys probably know by now that uh, I'm a bit scatterbrained lately, so I got to stay on track. Otherwise, we'll be here forever. Um. Most of the time, beginning of January, we like to kind of talk about New Year's resolutions, don't we? And that gets a little old. So we were thinking through Miguel, Aaron, and Tori just what we might want to do that's a little bit new, a little bit fresh. And I had been reading this book. Uh, I'll probably butcher his name, but it's Gerhard Lufink. He's a German theologian, and he writes this book um, called Jesus of Nazareth, who he is and what he wanted, something like that. And I'm not done with yet. I'm probably 70 pages in, but... One of the things that he's been focusing on is the reign of God, something that Jesus spoke a lot about. And I found it particularly powerful. And I found, you know, something we talk a lot about that I think many of us have lost um, as time goes on is just urgency, this uh, sense of immediacy that, that even Jesus had. You know, he talks a lot about the things that were happening right then and things that we feel like, well, they're not happening, and it seems like they're not going to happen for a long time, and we lose our urgency. And I thought it'd be really good to talk about this idea of just the kingdom is for today, that we choose the kingdom of God today. Because we, this is not a novel idea probably for most of us. Most of you, if you've been here at all, you've heard us talk about the kingdom of God as something that is now, but it's also not yet. And I, I, I find this tendency in my mind, I, I, I get it as an idea, and I very much agree and teach that it's now, but I, I, I find in my behavior, in my thought life, in my patterns, that in lots of ways I betray that, that I really do emphasize in my own life its futureness rather than its nowness. And so I want you to hear that. You know, it's kind of like, I'm not, I'm not very good at, at a illustrations, but I was thinking about this last night in bed, just my mind racing. Um, you know, it's kind of like if I was to draw a, a 2D picture of, of a diamond. You know, you could get a sense of what that diamond looks like, right? But it's not captivating. You can't turn it around in your hand and let the, the light glimmer on it and glisten and you can just be captivated by it. And I think too often that's how ideas are with us. We think, oh, I've already heard that. But really, we just have this understanding, this kind of 2D model understanding, and we think that we get it, and we don't get it yet. Does that make sense? It's not really become real. And if it doesn't captivate you, I would say you probably don't get it yet. And so I hope that by the end of this, some different aspects of the kingdom of God will, will, will further captivate you. There is this great paradox of the, of the here-ness and not yet. I like George Ladd as a theologian. 
And he, he refers to this mystery as the fulfillment without consummation. And I think too often because we think that God hasn't come back and consummated things yet, that there's not fullness. And we buy into this idea perhaps that he's revealed himself just in bits by bits and only given himself in bits by bits. I can have just a bit of him now as though he's kept the rest for himself. Rather than understanding, yeah, it's, it's not here fully, but the kingdom is still fully accessible to us. God is still fully accessible to us. His full power and his full reign are still in play. And that's why we, we talk so much about not buying into this idea that we, we find in popular kind of American interpretation of the scripture that we're whisked away to heaven. Eventually, I'll be given a new body. Eventually, I'll get to experience that. But right now, I don't. And so too many people, willfully or unwillfully, we stop seeking perfection. We stop seeking full fulfillment with God. We don't believe that he can or even would do that right now. And we don't live in light of what we're going to get to live with forever. That's what Christmas was all about. That's why anticipation is such a big part of that, that you know, we kind of betray ourselves. We say that we love that and we can't wait, yet we don't really seek for it now. And I say that we, as in me, I see it in my own life. There's nothing I'm more passionate about than God. But man, I am conflicted in so many ways and I'm um, du- duplicative. What's the word? Duplicit? Duplicitous? Sounds, that sounds smarter. We'll go with duplicitous. I'm duplicitous in so many ways. And I, I think if you look within yourself, you'll see the same thing. So my plan is to do this. Likely we'll need two weeks, but I want to do what I thought was going to be very simple. I want to talk about just two things. Is Number one, I want to talk about seeking the kingdom above all things. Again, not a very novel idea, but I think one that we need to, to, to revisit. And then secondly, to seek the kingdom in all its fullness. And that's where I'm going to spend most of my time today, and then we'll probably most likely take our break there. And then next week we'll come back. And I just want to ask and answer this question. How do I choose the kingdom in its fullness now today? And I'm going to give you three kind of simple practicals to go and uh, put into play in your life. How's that sound? Sweet. So number one, seek the kingdom above all things. Talk about a dirty trick. I didn't start my timer until after my intro. That's something I'm going to start doing now. I like that. Jeff, you taught me something really good. Um, seek the kingdom above all things. So many of you will be familiar with Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I want to take you back real quick as kind of an aside to Daniel 2. If you've not read Daniel 2 in a while, I'd, I'd encourage you to go revisit it. But he says, or here we see Nebuchadnezzar, old Neb, as we may want to call him. I've been watching a lot of King of Queens. Anybody watch that lately? Oh my gosh, come on. You people got to watch The Office, you got to watch Seinfeld, and you got to watch King of Queens. Those are the only references I know. So, I, I, I can't. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll withhold my reference. This millennium does not hold up to the old millennium, as I always say. (laughs) Anyway, old Neb, the ancient king of the Babylonian Empire, 
We're told about a dream he has about a great image or statue, presumably a man, with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. As the dream goes on, it's eventually shattered by a cataclysmic stone. Unsure of the meaning of the dream, he looks to Daniel for its interpretation. Under God's inspiration, Daniel tells him the statue represents successive empires that will also that will all rise and fall. Many identify these as the Babylonian Empire, the Greco-Macedonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Roman Empire. If you've never thought about this, I think you would probably agree there are probably few, if any, people in those empires that ever thought they would fall, right? They were too big, too massive, too powerful, too resourceful. But notice what Daniel says about the stone in Daniel 2.44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall be left to other people, shall not be left to other people. That's key, not. Don't forget that word. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. It reminds me, I think my favorite poem of all time is by Percy Shelley, and it's just called Ozymandias. I don't have time to go into the whole background, but I I think that it will... uh, Resonate with this point nonetheless. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far and away. That's powerful to me. It's powerful. I know you probably haven't had time to process it the way that I have, but he comes across what was once a great empire, and it's dust. It's covered with sand. It's gone. And that's what Daniel's getting at. We are a part of the kingdom that will never succumb to dust. It will never weather. Amen? Daniel goes on to say that those who inherit the kingdom are called saints of the Most High and they will possess the kingdom forever and ever. And I think in some ways seeking the kingdom above all perhaps begins here. We must recognize that God has overthrown all other rulers and authorities. All the other so-called gods that beckon us with their empty promises. Do you want to enter his kingdom? If so, you must prioritize his kingdom above all else in your life. As you know, we say it a lot up here, the way of Jesus is no mere assent to a set of beliefs and notions. It's a call to a concrete way of living, living in full obedience to Him. That's why He says, seek Him in His righteousness as well. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. If you want to live in his kingdom, his kingdom must also live in you. You can't simply loiter around and think you're a part of it. It takes more than that, a lot more. Consider John 10.10. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I think in our search for fullness and joy, we've adopted so many things in our life that are the causes of their inconsistency and meagerness. Right? This is just a tried and true, simple truth. We know the things that Satan offers us in this world can't fulfill us, and yet we keep trying to go to them for fulfillment. And we keep riding the fence thinking, thinking that we can have all these things and have God too. I mean, gosh, if I had a penny for every time somebody came up with some silly excuse after a sermon or a challenge, whether it was I did it or somebody else, it's, I remember in particular, you know, we were just challenging people to show up to church. One of the most basic things you can do if you want to be a part of his people and you want to be a part of his kingdom, right? It's one of the most basic things. We got to move on beyond that. But I remember after a particular sermon talking about that, somebody coming up just saying, but I just love traveling. As though that was sufficient in and of itself as an excuse. I love traveling too. But at some point we have to make a decision whom we're going to serve and what that service is going to look like. Am I going to follow part-time or am I going to follow full-time? Am I going to go to church around my, my trips and around my fun or am I going to do the reverse? We search in futility because we search in the wrong place. The robber causes mayhem and chaos for his own selfish gain. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And we're still ignorant. We're, we're grabbing things that are not in and of themselves bad things, in and of themselves ungodly, but we make them ungodly because we make them idols. And we listen to the voice of those things over the voice of God. We hear the bike trail calling us rather than our community calling us. We hear the basketball court calling us. We hear the plays and the concerts calling us. You go down the list. I don't think I need to continue to clarify. I think you guys know where we stand on this. This is not a legalistic notion, and I don't think we're in danger of that within this church. You're not going to be saved because you come to church and you have a perfect record. But how can you claim to play in the kingdom of God if you don't show up? I know we get tired of hearing that, but we have to hear it. Jesus not only preserves life, he provides it. If you want life, if you want abundant life, Jesus is the only one that wants to give it to you, and he's the only one that can give it to you. He's the only one that's able. Abundant life is certainly about eternal intimacy with God, but I think it's also very clearly about flowering into the life full of God's love and his nature. I think about the fruits of the Spirit. It's flowering into the full fruits of the Spirit. And I am patient, I am kind, I am loving, I am merciful. When I talk about entering into the fullness of the kingdom of God, that in particular is what is on my mind. I want to be more loving. I want to be more merciful. I want to be at peace with myself and my neighbor. And too many of us don't because we still love nation more than we love neighbor. Two. Seek the kingdom in all its fullness today. So I kind of talked about that book I've been reading a little bit. Let me jump ahead in my, my notes here. So I, I kind of said he emphasizes this phrase, reign of God, over against the kingdom of God. Doesn't have anything bad to say against it, but, you know, that was Martin Luther's translation. 
And uh, he feels that reign of God better kind of fleshes out and represents this biblical concept of a whole. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. This comes from an Aramaic word, Malkuta, which is the language, language that Jesus spoke every day. And it just means um, the king's ruler reign. That's firstly what it means. And then secondly, it deals with the extent of his rule or his reign or his territory that he rules over. The reign of God has a very clear event character. It's something that happens. It's not merely some idea. It's something that comes or is coming. And I think it's important to note a couple of errors here. Some have erroneously equated the kingdom of God with heaven. You know, Matthew uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, and I think it's easy to think, oh, he's just talking about heaven. Some place in the future, time in the future, we'll get there eventually. But that's not what the Bible calls heaven. It's also erroneously been thought that the kingdom of heaven is something purely within us, but the Bible never really backs that concept either. Part of our need for a better understanding, the, the reign of God and what that means, requires a look at eschatology. Eschatology is just a theological term that refers to the last things. And typically when people think of the last things, or you're looking at like church dogmatics doctrine, it's dealing with things like the death of the individual, judgment, purification, after death, the end of the world, judgment, resurrection of the dead, etc., that kind of stuff. And again, it's easy to think, oh, that's all not happened yet. It's way in the future. We think that it has little to do with the here and now. But throughout the New Testament, and especially in the words and actions of Jesus, we get a very different feeling. These so-called last things are now here, and they're breathing down our necks. I think it helps to first take a look at John the Baptist and what he said, because he was paving the way for Jesus. And a lot of what he was talking about, these traditions and these phrases are, are phrases and traditions that Jesus adopted and continued to uh, flesh out further for people. So look in Luke 3.9, or just make a mental note of it later. It's very powerful. He has a stark warning here, because he's a prophet of Israel, right? And he's warning the Israelites. And as a prophet, it's often very severe, um, or seemingly quite severe, and it's definitely uncompromising. Look what he says, Luke 3, 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Israel has become a collective disaster, and he's telling them they've got to turn back. If they fail to do so, they're going to be cut down and they're going to be dug up. Israel's God is God's planting, and therefore it's God's plant to judge, right? Every tree that bears no fruit will be cut down. He's very clear. Israel is in need of a new exodus and a new entry back into the promised land. And that's where baptism comes into the play. John doesn't just go baptize people anywhere at this particular moment. What does he do? He goes down to the Jordan. He goes down to the Jordan where Israel once crossed into the promised land. And he's inviting the people to make another crossing another exodus from the old life into the new life. And this is the case because the judgment of Israel is at hand. It's imminent. It's here. The ax is at the root of the tree. Hope is not yet lost, though. Judgment can be transformed into salvation, but you must choose now. Repentance and baptism in the Jordan was the way that they could be sealed and protected from the judgment that was imminent. His warning is aimed at the gathering of Israel, God's people for their repentance, purification, and sanctification. It was for an eschatological renewal. 
The baptizer's words were received into the New Testament and is still applied to us today. And herein lies the paradox. It was imminent then and it is imminent now. The axe is at the root of the tree. Look what he says right before verse 9 in Luke 3, 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. A couple things here. One, we see a sharp word combating any sense of a collective certainty of salvation, right? Just because they were children of Abraham that they were going to be saved. And we buy into notions like that still, don't we? I'm in a Christian family. I'm in a Christian church. I'm a relatively good person. I hang out with good people, whatever that is. And and we think that we're going to slide on through. No, you have to choose. You have to choose. Secondly, Israel is to produce fruits that are consistent with their repentance. Fruits worthy of their repentance. Are your fruits worthy of your repentance? When does all this happen? Right away. Now. The shovel is in the judge's hands. The axe is at the root of the tree. According to John, the judgment is not coming sometime in the future. It is so near that it is upon us. No time is left to delay. Turn back immediately. That means that every individual must go to the Jordan, confess his or her sins, be baptized, and so enter the eschatological gathering of Israel. Then when Jesus comes on the scene, we see Jesus obeying the baptizer's preaching. He let himself be baptized in the Jordan. He also adopted and therefore confirms John's sense of urgency in this matter. There's no time left to wait or turn aside. Every individual must act now because God is acting now. I think a good example of Jesus' sense of this immediacy, just of the overall crisis, is the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the reign of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. God's intervention is about to take place. This is why they are blessed, not because there is any particular value or merit in being poor and being hungry. Jesus directs the poor and the hungry to this eschatological turning point for all time, not only to some promised better future after death, although that certainly applies. This turning point point affects all and changes all things. He promised these poor and hungry that they will, in particular, participate in the reign of God presently. Jesus is sure that this turning point is at hand. In gathering Israel anew, it will make a possible, it will make possible a new society where poor and hungry are now no longer neglected, and they get to take part in the wealth and health of the land. And that's where we come in, is that we get to be people that are part of this new kingdom, that we take care of the poor and the hungry. And we we take we talked about it at Christmas. We take great joy in giving out of our surplus, and we take great joy in giving out of our lack thereof surplus. It's a bad sentence, but you know what I mean. Take great joy in giving where it hurts, where it stretches us. We give our last two pennies, because that is the heart of God. If the Beatitudes had been only a mere consolation to be had after death, all history would have been rendered valueless and made merely a preliminary stage before the real thing comes upon us. God's salvation would no longer take place in the here and now. We don't believe that, do we? Do we believe that? 
Man, we're a dead audience. I'm waiting for one no. Thank you. I knew Clay would give it. He's very righteous. <laughs> I can always count on Clay and Preston and Mark um, to, to back me up. The main contrast between the baptizer and Jesus is while the baptizer emphasized judgment, which Jesus also confirms, he preaches salvation. You look in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the reign of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The reign of God is being announced. Notice that repentance and turning back is a consequence of the presence of the reign of God. We see this throughout scripture and once again, it is God who acts first. It is God who initiates and we respond. It's God's action that makes our responding even possible. He's come near to us. Has come near. Again, what does this mean? I think you can kind of look at a parallel in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Paul means the same thing when he says, now is the day of salvation. Not later in the future is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. It's true the phrase does have this have come near, has an element of not yet, but it's less about God's action than it is about Israel's response. And I think this is something critical and something I've been thinking a lot about for my my own self. The people of God at this point in time have not yet turned back. It's still the moment of decision. The reign of God is near and on offer for those that choose it. It's laid before them. It's within simple reach. And one of the things he gets at is that, I think I'm jumping ahead of myself, but one of the things that he gets at is that so much of the not yetness of the kingdom is not because of God withholding it, but it's because of me not taking it. It's because of Israel. It's because of us. As long as it is not accepted, it remains merely near, and the people must continue to pray thy kingdom come as they miss the kingdom that is upon them. The tension of now and not yet is perhaps most present in Luke four sixteen to 30 I won't go into all of it, but Jesus reads Isaiah in the synagogue. He's reading Isaiah 61, 1 to 2 in particular and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What does that mean? I think with Jesus' preaching, healing, and saving deeds, the book of Isaiah is now fulfilled. And that's what he has said. The time of fulfillment is here, and Jesus is the one that has brought it. Jesus is the one that is bringing it. At first, we see Jesus received happily, but the tides turn quickly, don't they? Happy reception turns to offense. Most were and long had been praying for this day, and yet when it comes, they're offended at what it looks like. It's not what they expected. It's not what they had imagined. It's much too concrete and requires much more change than they had figured it would. Many would prefer to delay and push this decision off into the future So they turn aside from it altogether. The reign of God is thus not accepted and the today on offer is missed. This is why the already of the kingdom becomes the not yet. Throughout history, we have recoiled from the concreteness of Jesus' reigning in our today, haven't we? It's kind of the whole idea. I remember uh, it was uh, Mark Royal from from uh, Plano Church had asked this question one time to a group of guys of just like, how holy do you want to be? And, and we kind of pick these measurements. This is how holy I want to be. And often it's based off of this idea of this is what I need to get into heaven. 
It's not about the people of God. It's not about glorifying and pleasing God. It's about me. I want to be good enough so I get my reward. It's a total misunderstanding of what the gospel is all about and what it was set to do for you, to put you into play, to put you into action of the kingdom of God, to help gather his people. But this concreteness of Jesus reigning in our today places our desires and our plans, our notions, all in immediate danger. It could never mean today because that would require too much of us. Gerhard Lufink puts it really well, I think, here, and I'll just quote him. He says, therefore, God's salvation is better delayed into the future. There it can lie, hygienically and snugly packed, at rest, inconsequential. Is that true in any way in your life? Are you putting off God into the future in some form or fashion? On one side of the coin, it can create an intensified longing for another world, certainly, but in turn, it robs the church collectively and certainly individually of renewal now. In failing to engage with the today of Jesus, we fail to take salvation in the here and now. And as a result, the church misrepresents Jesus in so many ways. We fail to to represent him and who he really is in his nature. And so many people are looking at the church today disgusted with what they see. For the New Testament people, which is us, it's of vital importance that we believe and accept the fact that everything depends on our belief and trust that God's promises are intended to be fulfilled already, now, today, and that God is acting today. You see, for those that doubted the arrival of his kingdom then and now, Jesus has some pretty stark words. He says Luke in Luke eleven twenty, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When we see people escape their states of oppression, and we've seen that in this community, haven't we? We've seen people escape things we never thought they would escape. Some of us have escaped things we never thought we would escape. When such people breathe new life, the reign of evil is broken, and there is proof that the reign of God is here. That happens solely by the reign of God. Luke 17, 20 to 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, lo, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The point is, the kingdom of God doesn't come with thunder and lightning bolts. It's seen in changed lives. Yes. I think, I'll probably jump ahead again, but, you know, I was thinking about, let me see if it's right here. No, it's not. I think it might be next week, but I'll go over it again. I think about, I'm just going to skip ahead and read it. Why do that to myself? Let me see here. Theoretically, I'll be able to find it. And if not, I'll just move on. Yeah, that was a swing and a miss. Can't find it. But essentially, I I think many of us miss it. Um, Maybe I thought I wrote it. Maybe I was dreaming about writing this part of my sermon. I never put it in. But 
I was thinking about the kingdom of heaven being like yeast. Right? It's something that starts small, innocuous, obscure. But what it does is it changes things drastically. And what was once a, a, just a, a lump, right, of ickiness becomes bread that gives life. It's tasteful and it's pretty and it brings people together. And too many of us, I think, in some ways, because the kingdom comes like it comes, we come here and we miss what we're a part of. We don't really see what's going on. It looks mundane. It looks normal. It's just a lump that's going to become bread. No big deal. Nothing grand. But that's wrong. And it couldn't be more wrong. It is the most grand thing. That's why we are a, a church that speaks strategically and missionally up here so much. It would be easy just to pick the most interesting topics week after week, and plenty of churches do that. But we dare to get up here and be missional, and we act like a family, and we chide each other, and we poke each other, because we want to be purposeful. And that's not always fun. It's not always exciting. But that's what it takes to be a part of the kingdom that is a movement that is trying to to spread across the world and bring all of his people together. It takes purposefulness. We're not coming here just to, to play church, and we're not coming here just to entertain ourselves. We're coming here because we are a part of the people of God, and we are on mission. Amen? And so don't miss that. Don't miss that Sunday morning. Don't miss that in your small groups. Don't miss that at the retreats. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. And it's easily missed because we're waiting for the lightning bolts and the thunder. And when God comes, He doesn't come halfway. He comes entirely. Do we do justice to Jesus' message if we interpret it, say, that God comes to us bit by bit? No. God would have us free of the evils holding us hostage from Him now, today. What's holding you hostage? And are you waiting for deliverance? Are you seeking that and trusting Jesus and his community for deliverance now? Are you scared of the next step in your faith and and the next, you know, take, we, we talk a lot about taking on roles and I'll talk about that at the practicals next week. Are you scared of what it would mean for you in stepping up in your faith and stepping up in community and taking on more responsibility, whether that's an official capacity or non-official Are you scared of what that would mean of your life and that would require of you, both in your time and your resources and in your heart and your mind? Give that stuff over to God. He wants to give you abundant life to the full, and He's equipped to help you do that. Many of us are familiar with the so-called honorable excuses that keep us from accepting Jesus, right? Luke 14, 15 to 24, we see a man that's prepared a banquet. Let me see. I think I'm skipping ahead. No, that's it. We see a man that's prepared a banquet. The, the guests did not come. One brought a farm. One bought a farm. One bought five oxen. One got married. They cannot come. The parable is not first about salvation of the individuals, although that may come into play. The feast is about God feasting with his people. The feast is to happen in the here and now. The hour of Jesus appearing is still as much in question now as it was then. Those invited continue to find old and new excuses. Those most often that seem honorable and thus excusable. 
They fail to understand that in doing so, they have only managed to shield themselves from God and being gathered into his people. I think we salve our conscience with the notion that what, with the fact that we want to do it. That's what we see with these individuals. Oh, I want to, but I've got to go do this. I have matters to attend to. But Jesus is saying, Acts is at the root of the tree. You have no more time for that. That's why he says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. And he says those stark words. We have to choose today whom we're going to serve and whom we're going to be loyal to. And too many of us are trying to be loyal to multiple things. As Lou Fink says, you have no more time because the world is burning down. You have to act now for you have encountered God's cause. You have to put your whole existence into play right now. Now because you have received God's invitation. Our motivation is not first one of duty, although we do have a duty to God, but because he first loved us and because he is offering the feast. He's the one that gives it and you can sit down at his table and feast with him and his people now. That's our motivation. The judgment is still in play, but that's why Jesus taught salvation. Believe in the good news and repent. Believe that there is a feast to be sat down at and had. Consider the parable of the treasure in Matthew 13, and I'm wrapping up. We get to 1130, and everybody's like, I'm getting out of here. Consider the parable of the treasure in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. It doesn't say he buried it again and went home rejoicing at the thought he could lay hands on it at some time in the future. No, the parable says he obtains the treasure on the spot. In his joy, he sells all he has, and he buys the field. The hidden treasure of the reign of God is dug up and the pearl of great price is obtained in the present moment. Have you found the treasure that is of the kingdom of God and have you gone back and buried it for later? Or have you obtained it now and you're twisting it in the light? You're saying, this is awesome. I'll give everything for this. I'll go sell all my stuff. You hear the adage, anything that you own owns you, right? That is true doesn't mean that we have to actually get rid of everything and get rid of all of our hobbies and our likes, but you've got to give them up. You've got to truly give them up in your heart and your mind and know and trust and believe that God is enough. And not just that he's enough, but that he's everything that you could ever want and more. It's the same principle of mine when he talks about heaven that you can't even imagine Our puny brains can't even imagine what he has in store. It's the same thing about his nature. We see things in a glass darkly. And at some point we're going to see them in full and we are going to be amazed, I believe. So I want to end there. And uh, we'll get to the practicals next week. And uh, I, I would hope that you would go and think about that and pray about that and you would let the Spirit spend some time with you in your own reflection and just asking God to show you the parts of you that need changing this next year. That we don't just sit down and we put some trivial New Year's resolutions, but we think nitty-gritty about what is God trying to do with me? So many of us don't feel like we have a purpose. So many of us don't feel like God wants to use us, but He does. 
And we are a church that's not perfect in this regard, but we are a church that does our best to look out and look for people that are wanting to be used and we want to use them. We're not looking for perfection. We're not looking for polish. I, I joke about that every time I get up here because I'm not a polished speaker. I love reading. I love thinking, but I can't talk English very well. I just say weird words and it's fun to laugh at. But I love that about our church. And I love that I can have a church that I can get up and speak passionately about my God and not worry about all the polish. You can get to work in your small groups and Sunday morning and your one-on-ones and not feel like you have to be polished. God uses the weak people of the world that I am weak. And you are weak. Pray with me. God, we love you so much. And I just pray that you help us to choose the kingdom today and that we choose it in its fullness. We love you. Amen. Thanks, guys. Go in peace.